Welcome to Frontier 3, presented by PatSnap. In this 20-episode podcast series, we will be unpacking the innovation ecosystem of Web3. From tokenized physical goods to the digital assets and smart contracts that will build the metaverse, Web3 is one of the biggest technological and socioeconomic paradigm shifts in history. Join PatSnap's co-founder, Ray Chohan, for a fascinating deep dive into how Web3 will fundamentally change how we live, work, and play. Welcome to Frontier 3. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode 10 of Frontier 3 presented by Pat Snap. In today's episode, our host, Ray Chohan, sits down with Matt Taylor. Matt is the head of growth at Solana Labs. Matt has been obsessed with cryptocurrencies ever since he wrote his undergraduate thesis on the economics of -of proof-of-work consensus mechanisms. From then on, he noticed that he can't spend more than 30 minutes before bringing it up in conversation. Matt now works on a blockchain called Solana and is the head of growth at the company. In today's episode, Matt and Ray talk about Solana the future of the blockchain, NFTs, and so much more. We hope you enjoy today's episode with Matt Taylor. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by PatSnap. Learn how to unlock your limitless innovation potential with connected innovation intelligence. CII is an AI-powered technology that comes through millions of disparate data points, segments them by industry and relevance, and weaves the insights together to create a meaningful narrative. The result? a holistic 360-degree market view where you can easily spot risks, identify opportunities, and accelerate the pace of innovation. We created the Definitive Guide to Connected Innovation Intelligence to give you an in-depth understanding of how CII can help your business innovate better. If you want to grab a copy of this, head over to patsnap.com or click the link in the description of this podcast to get it today. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Matt, welcome to Frontier Free. Really excited to have you on the show today. And Matt, would love to just kick off with your journey, really, in terms of your professional journey and how you ended up at Solana and in the wonderful world of Web3. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me on the the show. I'm happy to dive into it. Um, I guess... I started my crypto journey in college. Um, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Bitcoin proof of work um, and kind of the economics of Bitcoin mining. Um, I was just taking a lot of economics courses and I had an internship in the tech industry. And so I kind of combined those interests um, when I found Bitcoin. And um, yeah, still to this day, a a big Bitcoiner and uh, really interested in that. But I... um, I got interested in Ethereum uh, shortly around the same time, um, and I didn't I didn't work in crypto initially after graduation. I worked at a, a large payments company called Square, um, but then in kind of 2017, uh, obviously crypto started to take off in terms of adoption and awareness, and so I had been just you know really interested in since college, and I decided to jump in full time, and I joined a Ethereum project called ZeroX, which is a decentralized exchange protocol. Um, And then about a year and a half ago, I learned about Solana and got more involved in their community. And yeah, now I work for Solana Labs. 
um, and which is kind of one of the core development teams um, behind the, the underlying blockchain. And uh, yeah, happy to talk about my experience. You're, you're the head of growth at Solana and, and that job title, got it, it means different things in different contexts. When I think of growth, I'm thinking more web to SaaS where it might be growth, uh, product growth or some form of uh, growth-led marketing or if it's, say, Spotify trying to grow user base. So so what does head of growth mean at a Web3 trailblazer like Solana? What, what, is, what is your day-to-day there? Yeah, I mean, I kind of wear a lot of different hats um, depending on the day. It's a, it's a small team. And um, I guess the, the main thing that I uh, view my responsibilities as are just growing the developer ecosystem um, getting developers interested in the technology, um, introducing them to kind of existing projects building on on Solana, um, and so um, yeah, it's 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 somewhat traditional tech, um, kind of like growth hacking, um, but it's also just you know talking with teams in more of kind of a business development fashion, um, and getting you know folks excited about crypto generally, and and uh, yeah, Solana specifically. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned developer numbers. We'll just put a pin in that because Electric Capital released a really interesting yeah. report looking at the developer numbers. So we'll just put a pin in that for now. But a lot of our audience will probably be aware of Web3 because it's got, I think it's getting more and more in the zeitgeist every month and actually more and more in LinkedIn in time. But there's still probably the large majority who have got no clue or don't even have a foundational understanding on the underlining principles and the inner why behind Web3. So in kind of layman's terms, if you could unpack in your own words, because everyone's got a slightly nuanced narrative to this, like what is Web3 and what attracted you to this paradigm shift? Yeah, everyone's got a kind of different answer to this. Um, I would, I would, for me, I'm, I'm going to carve out Bitcoin from, from Web3. It's, you know, it's going after disrupting central banking and um, fiat money. And I'm going to keep that separate. But um, when thinking about Web3 on kind of like smart contract blockchains, like Ethereum and Solana, um, I think it kind of comes down to giving people for the first time uh, one, you know, digital property rights in kind of the new digital world. Um, and secondly, it provides developers and entrepreneurs a, a kind of a credibly neutral platform for, for building their applications um, and products. And so those kind of combination of, of benefits of digital property rights and this credible, credibly neutral platform for development I think is is what's really exciting about um, the space, and I think we're kind of seeing a lot of interesting verticals pop up. Whether it's you know decentralized finance, DeFi, um, you know blockchain gaming, um, and this this whole long tail of of different use cases that that kind of remove the intermediary um, that you kind of see uh, extract rent or take hold in kind of the Web two world. So hopefully that's that's kind of helpful in, in shaping the conversation. It makes sense. So when you talk about incredibly neutral, are you kind of alluring to the fact that most of the protocols are open source? So it becomes 
like a, a dreamland of composable Lego blocks where you can build on top of previous work. Is is that your context behind incredibly neutral, Matt? Yeah, so incredibly neutral, not incredibly neutral, but yeah, um, <laughs> I I think that's part, definitely a part of it, just the open source nature and the kind of the composability of using kind of existing open source primitives to, to kind of like build out your application. Um, I think that's part of it. More what I'm referring to there is maybe a good example is um, looking back at the kind of the beginning of Twitter, um, the product, it, it started out um, this kind of open source protocol um, for, for messaging and, you know, the, the, the feed of information from your followers and all of that was kind of open to the external developer community to kind of build products and services around that using that core protocol. And so you saw like in the early days of Twitter, a lot of flourishing of, um, you know, external applications like TweetDeck and, and other things like that that would modify the UI, but still kind of tap into this core protocol. Um, but what happened um, and why Twitter is not credibly neutral is that one day kind of the Twitter company, the centralized company said, well, we're not actually getting a lot of the value out of you know, the, the, the customers that are you know, using the protocol. And so we're just going to cut off API access to all of these external developers, which ruin their businesses, right? Um, and so when I talk about this neutrality, it's, it's just that it's the, it's the confidence that you'll have complete open access to these underlying blockchains, the data, um, and users are, are, can, can, can interact with these things um, without working with like this kind of central intermediary blocking them or shaping their kind of experience. It's more of a free market. So there's no situation of that classic web to rug pull where you've built a meaningful business through the API offering. And then one day you wake up and it's that quintessential rug pull and it's good night Vienna in essence. So, so that scenario is not possible in a, in a pure play web three format. Yeah, that's right. And I think like another great example, like I, I don't know if this story is actually true, but this, there's this legend that um, Ethereum was actually born when Vitalik had this, this game item, a warlock. I think it was in either like League of Legends or, or something like that, a game like that. And like <laughs> the company that made League of Legends like took away his warlock. And yeah. <laughs> he was like, this is not credibly neutral. I need to build a better alternative for, you know, gaming, you know, companies to, to build on. And so, um, yeah, I think it, it applies to much more than just kind of traditional web to social media platforms. I think there's a whole long tail of things that this applies to. They always say great entrepreneurs can link their creativity to some form of childhood trauma. So <laughs> his warlock scenario might have yeah. been one of his moments that really peed him off to go one day. I'm going to build something interesting. I actually have heard that story regarding Vitalik because he's quite a an interesting and a mythical figure, isn't he? But uh, yeah, so, so, so actually segueing into Ethereum and your early journey, Matt, so obviously you go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole while you're in college and then um, get enticed by more the smart contract layer one world with Ethereum. And just taking a step back, and then obviously you're now at Solana, and I know they're one of the fast-moving trailblazers within the the layer one space. But just unpacking 
layer one protocols and and fundamentally what they're offer because again there's going to be so many folks on linkedin who might have heard of ethereum solana maybe polygon and, and some of the other well polygon's more layer two but some of the other layer ones like cardano and i think there's a whole bunch of other ones out there but who don't really get what layer one protocols mean and what's their value so could you unpack that just as a primitive so the audience can get a little flavor of just the underlining principles behind the likes of Ethereum and Solana? Yeah. Um, so I, I think you can think of layer ones as the under, like the lowest level of infrastructure um, that developers and entrepreneurs build kind of these decentralized apps on top of. And what they provide is a way for transactions on these networks to be, you know, uncensorable. Um, and they provide kind of a development environment and almost like an operating system um, to, to kind of like build out applications. And that involves tooling and all sorts of developer resources. Um, and I think they, the layer one landscape is kind of differentiated based on the kind of the performance of the underlying chains in terms of like how many transactions um, can this blockchain process concurrently? Um, how many, you know, what are the fee, the average fees? Um, and then really most importantly, and maybe we can get into this about Solana is, is this notion of composability in a single state um, that developers can can tap into. Um, and so those are kind of like the core properties. And each one of these blockchains has kind of a community around it of developers and, and projects and stakeholders that have kind of different views on how to scale these underlying this underlying infrastructure. And so that's that's where a lot of the differences come in. Um, and so happy to happy to talk about that as well. Yeah, because I know Ethereum, obviously, they're the OG in the smart contract world. But then you had some really compelling fast followers during the winter, right? I think Solana, it was 2017, 2018, when um, uh, the founders started building that technology out. So so obviously, you were curious about Ethereum in when along your journey, but then swiftly were attracted to Solana. What specifically attracted you to the Solana protocol and, and their wider mission? Yeah, I think um, working in Ethereum, I kind of had like a front row seat um, in like 2018 um, on kind of seeing these new use case verticals where there's a lot of demand. So that's primarily like DeFi, right? Um, and seeing kind of how how that ecosystem was developing and then later on kind of like nfts and and gaming and and other use cases but um i think what i saw was that one like first of all like solana viewed kind of ethereum as like you know this this amazing technology and trailblazer that that created you know allowed for these new kind of verticals to arise but that it was kind of running up against some issues with with its scale. So there was so much demand for Ethereum, you know, block space and, and these applications that fees were rising very quickly and transactions were not getting confirmed in a very fast manner. And there was kind of a community effort in Ethereum to, to one, add layer twos and two, 
add this kind of new architecture known as ETH 2.0 um, that involved sharding. Um, and that was how it was going to scale. Um, but that that was going to sacrifice massively on composability, composability between the applications building on top. And so Solana kind of architected its infrastructure around maintaining this composability as well as just an order of magnitude better, you know, transaction throughput. Um, and yeah, I think that was interesting to see. Um, and there were a lot of like, I guess, like interesting benchmarks that they released in 2018 about the, you know, the, around the white paper and what this system could do. And I was pretty skeptical, but, you know, the network launched, I think on March, 2020 and it, they, uh, you know, the core team did it initially. And I think that was very, very telling that the technology was real and that it worked. Um, and then second was like, it's not enough to build out you know, a blockchain that's, you know, a better product, right? The, the best product doesn't always win. You need to kind of like convince a bunch of developers and this whole community to keep it going and to build and to grow it. Um, and that's really difficult. And what I saw that kind of convinced me um, in mid 2020 was that not only did they build out the technology and it was ordered as a magnitude more performant and composable than Ethereum, it's that there was a community forming around it and developing it. Um, that I thought was really special and that I felt like I could could help contribute to. Um, so, yeah. That makes sense. So, yeah, Ethereum, I mean, I think they've had a, a lot of challenges with their ETH2 theoretical launch, which keeps on getting pushed out. And obviously sharding, roll-ups, there's a whole ecosystem behind that, right? Like Arbitrum and I think Polygon kind of play into that. Yeah. If, if they're one of the layer twos trying to increase the transactions per second and, and reduce the cost. So it looks like they're they're trying to stitch things together as they go, right? Which is kind of like trying to, I mean, this sounds a bit extreme, but it's trying to repair an aeroplane while you're in flight, if that makes sense. So, which is possible, but very awkward and, and, and high risk. So it, yeah, it makes sense why you were kind of drawn by the more focused vision um, for Solana. So so with Solana, you've got this kind of exponential improvement in TPS transactions per second. Uh, in terms of building on top of, it's probably a lot what I'm hearing from builders in this space. They do say that the dev kit and actually building on Solana is is really cool in terms of ease of use. That's some of the feedback I'm hearing. But one thing that a lot of people did say with Solana in the early years that the original use case of Solana was very much geared towards a central limit order book. So very much for the high frequency trading world for more kind of um, doing perpetual contracts, financial deliver der derivatives. So more hardcore financial services use case. Hence why you had Sam Bankman fried go. Yes. <laughs> Solana, I'm all in like FTX are impressed with your capability. So uh, is that the main kind of superpower for Solana in terms of dApps being built on top of it, more financial services products rather than Ethereum and some of the other folks, which probably have a more diversified ecosystem of financial services like DeFi, but also NFTs, other enterprise applications, other forms of use cases. So what does the current state and future state look like for the dApps on Solana? 
Yeah. Well, first I want to say that, that like, I think, you know, in my mind personally, like I don't view like Ethereum and Solana as like, you know, direct competitors in a lot of senses. Like I feel like Ethereum is going to continue to grow and fill the need of many use cases. And so will Solana. And so when talking about like what, what those use cases are, I think it's, it's pretty broad. I mean, anything that requires high frequency and low fees and a compo- and a composable ecosystem, I think Solana is a great fit for um, today. And I think, yeah, a lot of those use cases are more in kind of like DeFi, um, whether that's decentralized exchanges or lending protocols or derivatives um, that that really haven't been able to function correctly on Ethereum just due to the 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 nature of the, the speed and, and fees right now on, on Ethereum. Um, and so I think we're seeing a lot of developers tackle th- those areas. Um, but I think it applies also to things like NFTs, right? Like minting NFTs on Ethereum, it can be quite expensive. And on Solana, it's, it's really not. And so I think NFTs have grown considerably like I think, you know, OpenSea is the largest NFT marketplace on Ethereum. Um, They have most of the market share, although there's a project called Magic Eden on Solana that's catching up in just in terms of like total transactions and users. And so I think we're seeing quite a bit of usage on on the NFT front. And then, I don't know, there's there's just a long tail of interesting projects also being built on Solana like Audius. Just I think seven million monthly active users. It's kind of like a decentralized SoundCloud or a Spotify. Um, and so I I think the the long tail of use cases is pretty pretty unlimited. Um, but it seems like you know today, just given the current state of the crypto market and where most of the developers are building, I think DeFi is 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 the biggest best product market fit for Solana right now. Yeah, it definitely seems that with the TPS transactions per second and and some of that that central limit order book capability, which as one of their superpowers. But we've also seen some cool projects like I think Helium are doing some great work on the Solana protocol, and also I think Hive Mapper, which is a some form of decentralized Google Google Maps capability. So it, it does seem like things are spreading out. Is is there any ultra emergent App dApps which are gaining traction outside of Hive Mapper or or Helium, which really caught your attention, Matt. Like, wow, this is going to be big, but no one's talking about it. Is there any emergent dApps which you think are really going to blow up this year and and get into more more of a public profile? I think. Uh, for, well, first of all, actually, Helium is not built on Solana. I think they use their own chain. I think they're oh, okay. considering maybe Solana. I'm not sure, but. Um, yeah, that's like a separate project, but they're great. I, I love Helium. It, it's going really well. Um, I would say, yeah, Audius is is really interesting. I, I mentioned that before, but it's as I think 7 million monthly active users. So that, you know, just to give some context, I think Uniswap maybe has like 1.5 million um, monthly. And I think that's probably the top decentralized app across any ecosystem. Um, so their usage is really high. What's really interesting is that their their user base really doesn't know that they're using a blockchain under the hood. Um, they're just you know music fans and artists um, of all kind of types and sizes that 
that just feel like they, they can make a direct kind of um, relationship with their fans and, you know, stream their music freely. And so I think that's an interesting use case um, in kind of this long tail web three world. I think outside of Audius, there's a, there's a wide, you know, range of projects that are, are um, tackling everything from, you know, a, a decentralized social media platform to a decentralized discord to a decentralized GitHub. And so any, any kind of use case where like a, a large part of the user base is, is feeling like they're being restricted and they wanted a more open kind of free market platform, I think is kind of fair game. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what ends up working in the long run. Yeah, it definitely things that it seems like things are moving fast with Solana in terms of number of projects being built on top. I, I don't know. Were you at the event in Portugal last year where they had that big uh, gathering? Yes, yes, at Breakpoint in Lisbon. Yeah, it was great. Um, it was kind of one of the first time. It was our first kind of like in person conference, and um, it was great just seeing the whole community get together and yeah, meet each other face to face for the first time. So. Yeah, it was it was awesome, um, and it was it was great. Also, that a lot of people that were, you know, not necessarily building in the ecosystem, but were just curious about Solana, were there to meet ecosystem projects and founders, and you know, talk to our team and and get it more involved. So yeah, it was a it was a great event. Did did it surprise you the attendance? Did you get that feeling at the event that wow, there's actually more people here and more energy than you expected did it how did it kind of compare to your expectations and and just a wider team what was their kind of a post conference feedback yeah i mean i i think if you would have asked us i think when we were like thinking about planning this first of all like covid was tough to plan around just over the last year i mean we we had tried to kind of put together a plan you know even in like december 2020 for a conference later in 2021 and we were thinking, you know, it would be great if we have, you know, a couple hundred people, you know, of our ecosystem, you know, just to spend a couple of days together and we'll, we'll try to make that work. And so that was kind of our expectation going into the year. But obviously just throughout 2021, just the ecosystem grew so much um, and there was so much attention um, on the community and 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 just the, the projects building in the space. And so um, I think, yeah, we were just the, the Solana Labs team was was really excited um, to, to see that. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can do it even bigger and better next year. Great. So you've got this kind of USP in terms of transactions per second, low cost, a really user-friendly developer kit. So kind of the on-ramp is probably a lot more easier than other layer ones to allow entrepreneurs to build on top of Solana. What's next, Matt, in terms of this year and next year? Is there any new net new innovations at Solana which should really kind of accelerate the protocol's capability and uh, and and ability to kind of be a leading layer one? Is there anything in the pipeline which gets you really uh, gets you and the team really excited? Yeah, I mean, I I think this is like another big difference between Solana and pretty much every other layer one is that the way that it's architected is, is not really um, relying on any sort of like computer science breakthroughs to continue to scale. 
it's really built on kind of like, and I guess this comes from like Anatoly, um, who's the the creator and and the founder, um, and the team kind of he, he initially hired is they're all from like Qualcomm and like you know experts in distributed systems from like Web two, and I think what they realized was that like the way that a blockchain should work is 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 not that much different, and and what it takes to continue to scale is just continually getting better hardware, you know, thanks to Moore's law and just optimizing it every layer of the stack so that just you get just incremental and incremental better performance over the years. And so, you know, in terms of like what the Solana Labs team is is focused on kind of like the engineering side and, and not just Solana Labs. I mean, Solana Labs is just one kind of like development team in the ecosystem at this point. There's a bunch of, you know, external developer teams and, and individuals that are contributing at this point. And so I think it's just kind of like optimizing every layer of the stack and getting, you know, block, down, block times down from 400 milliseconds to 200 milliseconds and max TPS up from, you know, whatever, 50,000 transactions per second to 100,000 transactions per second. And so it's just, there, there's no breakthroughs that need to happen in order to scale to millions of transactions a second. It just needs to continue optimizing and hardware just continues to get better. Um, and so... That's that's kind of like the focus. Okay, so the journey to that hundred thousand TPS and lower cost, lower friction, more ease of use is more based on what's happening in the hardware and ASIC world, and you guys will then engineer to that internally. Is that what you're saying? It's more of an external force in the ASIC market. And then you guys just jet ski on the back of that, but then do a lot of hard core engineering to configure, to optimize that hardware upgrade. Is that, is that the kind of the school of thought there? Directionally. So it's not uh, ASICs. ASICs are, are for proof of work mining. Uh, uh, Solana is a, a proof of stake blockchain. Um, so it's a little bit different mechanism, but, but generally you're correct where, you know, you know, if you look at like an Xbox, you know, 10 years ago, um, it costs, let's say like $500, you know, to buy it, an Xbox one, and it, it had a certain speed. And like, just over time, you know, processors, chips, silicon development um, in, in computing just continues to get exponentially better. Um, and, you know, it, it also creates, you know, cheaper hardware. And so I think we're just kind of riding on that wave, as you say, where like we just kind of are 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 you know expecting that 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 will continue to happen into the future and we're gonna you know the community and all the developers around the validators um who really run the network are kind of optimizing around that that trend um so yeah Mm. so so that framework for growth is that from anatoly's background in Qualcomm and his background in semiconductors where he's like like that's happened in that industry well and it works well why can't we just kind of use that methodology in the web three layer one blockchain world? Is that, is that the general school of thought? Yeah, exactly. And I think that also like translates into just like why Solana can process so many transactions a second, just architecturally. So like one difference that that may be of interest to your audience is that in Ethereum and other layer ones, like transactions are processed serially which basically means like, 
you know, one transaction enters like a mempool of unconfirmed transactions and it's kind of like salt, you know, it's confirmed in kind of that order. Um, but in Solana, like it doesn't really work that way where like if, you know, person A sends a transaction to person B and person uh, C sends a transaction to person D, those two should be confirmed at the same time because they don't affect each other's accounts, right? And state on the blockchain. And so partially what what these machines that are, the validators run are doing is like just processing in parallel way more transactions rather than serially in order um, like on other chains. And so th- just these these architecture decisions on based on how like parallelization works in like Web2 and distributed systems previously have kind of been brought into this Web3 world. And I think that's where you see all the performance gains. Okay, makes sense. And obviously we hear the term validators a lot in the world of blockchain stroke Web3. I know a lot of folks haven't got a clue, Matt, (laughs) on what kind of a network validator is. So in the most simplistic format, imagine uh, I'm a nephew and it's kind of Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) How would you explain what validators mean in the world of blockchain and Web3? Yeah, well, validators are are entities that that run these machines that that confirm transactions on the network, um, and so they're really important because of that. Um, and it's important that there are a lot of these these folks um, because if you know there's only one validator, then the network isn't very decentralized, right? It's just if you can shut down that one validator who's processing all the transactions on the network, then it's not decentralized or censorship resistant, um, and so. It's important for many of these validators who are these these entities, often businesses that are running these machines, running the Solana network software, you know, abiding by the rules of the protocol and are confirming transactions on the network on behalf of all the applications and users um, that are using the network. Um, and so they're they're really important kind of stakeholders in the in the ecosystem. And also that, that makes sense in terms of creating that trust factor, right? And there's there's always this kind of battle about how decentralized the network really is. I know the Ethereum um, community really bang on about the importance of decentralization, and it's one of their things they're loud and proud about. And their kind of rebuttal to some of the other layer ones is they're not as decentralized. They're kind of working in partly a web two mindset when it comes to spreading that risk what are your thoughts that because then there are some on the application side is the users don't really give a shit about decentralization they want speed low cost and they want the outcome so what what's your school of thought as a as a fast moving practitioner in the space on the order of magnitude something should be decentralized well i think you know censorship resistance is and decentralization is really important. It's core to this notion of credible neutrality, right? Um, and making sure that the system is fair, open, and you know, unstoppable. Um, so it's it's a really important concept that's kind of core to all this technology that that crypto is kind of produced. Um, I think in terms of like the way that I think about it, though, is maybe a little bit different um, in the sense that I think you have to look at um, when when evaluating, okay, which network is more decentralized than another, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. But one of the core ones from a technical level is just how many validators or miners 
are economically relevant in the network and not necessarily like the total number. So for instance, like um, if, you know, in Solana, there, there's a lot of validators. There's, I think, something like 2000 validators that are live right now. Um, but the ones that I think that, and, and that's important, that's one factor. But what's more important is like, well, how many of those validators are actually confirming transactions that have actual economic weight in the system? And that's more like 19. Um, so much a much smaller number. And it, it's like, that is the number that if like a government or some bad actor wanted to shut down the network, you just target those 19 validators, shut them all down at the same time, and that would halt the network um, practically. Mm -hmm. And so you have to look at like, what is that number on other networks? And so on Ethereum, it's three mining pools. On Bitcoin, it's like two or three mining pools. And so I think the total number is important, but even more important is like optimizing for this, this what, what we call the Nakamoto coefficient. Like what is the, the total number of validators that are economically important that if you compromise, it would shut down the network. And so that's partially what like the Solana Foundation is working on improving is like their sole focus is how do we increase that number and make it easier to validate to, 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 to basically maximize decentralization. Brilliant. And, and that kind of, so, okay, that's really clear. Thanks for that, Matt. So it's the one, it's the ones who have economic significance, right? Mm -hmm. So that economic significance, is that directly correlated to proof of stake? Like how much they actually have staked themselves? Yes. On the yes. network. So is, is that where, so, so I'm jumping ahead. Sorry, we're getting to the more intermediate conversation, but <laughs> back, back for the begin beginners for our lovely LinkedIn community. What is proof of stake, Matt? Okay. Um, at, a, at a high level, um, in order to like confirm transactions on the network, you have to prove that you are, one, running a validator like machine um, that is capable of doing so. And two, you have to prove that you have economic weight um, behind your machines and your entity. In Bitcoin, um, it's the way that it's done is called proof of work. And you basically connect to a big power source, whether it's like a hydroelectric dam or like a wind farm, and you convert that energy into these machines called ASICs that that basically like compete on a global level across all other ASICs um, to confirm transactions and earn a reward in terms of like a block reward, so a little bit of Bitcoin. Um, in proof of stake and in Solana, there's this reward of, you know, uh, soul, soul tokens for confirming transactions and putting your locking up basically your, your tokens um, instead of like power. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what it is at a, try to say it at the highest level possible. I don't think that's very high level, but it's, it can get a lot more technical than that. That makes it, it's basically the the meaningful validators back up their work with actually having skin in the game, but but that skin in the game in Solana tokens is actually locked in. It's not like they can draw that down. They'll, they'll a good validator might. Obviously, I'm butchering this right now, so please correct me. You might have a good validator who does really good work, but maybe locks in their tokens for 36 months, so they're kind of a meaningful validator because they're actually got a high amount of value staked and they're locked in for a meaningful amount of time period. So th does that kind of play into the equation amount and time duration locked in? 
So um, in terms of like duration, I don't think there's any like specific timing that you want to lock in. Although like um, in order to participate, in order to continue earning like soul token rewards, you need to have a staked um, soul. Um, and so it's just a requirement to even participate in the network generally. And, you know, there's a, you know, when looking at validators, the ones that become kind of the top validators that kind of like scale their operations and earn more block rewards than others is that they have an extremely high uptime. And yes, they've, they've staked their tokens for a longer period of time. Um, and so I think those are factors that kind of lead to a building out like a successful validator business. I get this question a lot, actually, on LinkedIn. Where do these validators come from? Are they like people at home or mini businesses? Like, could like my 16-year-old nephew be a validator? Like, like, who are they and what's their background? Short answer is, yeah, anyone with like a good internet connection and like a really good gaming rig, basically, um, can can become a validator um and participate in consensus um and there's plenty of people that do that um having said that in order to be kind of like economically relevant and really like grow your business and actually earn you know staking rewards um you, you need to it's it's more of a business at that point where you have to connect with like a data center and you have to hire employees and ensure like uptime and making sure you're connected to the the network at all times. And so um, I think, you know, most of, if you just go to like solanabeach.io, you can kind of see all the validators listed there. A lot of those business, a lot of those validators at the top are, are professional businesses that this is like their, their job is to provide, you know, validating services across not just Solana, but all of these proof of stake networks. So um, yeah. And, and they're pretty globally distributed. I mean, there's a bunch in Europe, they're in Europe, United States, you know, Asia, South America. So it's really all over the world. Okay, makes sense. And and another question I got often is, what if in a Web2 form factor, you have a specific validator, which is a professional outfit, like you describe on, everyone should check out solanabeach.io, but that validator ends up having X private capital backing. So it becomes more and more powerful, has more and more staked, has more and more of the share of the economic activity. So then then it, then it poses some more, imposes a more centralized risk in a, a proof of stake network like Solana. Is there certain guide rails in place at the kind of core operating system level where that's not allowed and certain rules which kind of circuit break that scenario happening, Matt? So... Not in that sense. They're not rules around that. But I think you're you're right. Like, you know, there is a there is kind of a moat that some validators have. What's interesting though is that the the way that a lot of these validators get, you know, the stake size that they have is that they allow kind of individuals who have soul tokens to to stake on their behalf. So they delegate their t- these individuals like I like myself delegate my tokens to a validator right and so mm-hmm. there's also this kind of natural and i think we kind of saw this with bitcoin honestly with bitcoin pools in like 2014 2015 where if any one kind of pool or uh, or validator in this case becomes too powerful you see a lot of folks like unstake or pull out of that pool 
um, to, to, okay. to distribute the kind of the, the state because you don't want someone that has even that risk of you know centralizing the network. The other really important thing here is, and we're kind of getting, I guess, definitely into the intermediary section, is, <laughs> is this notion of um, being able to delegate to a stake pool. And what a stake pool does is that it delegates the tokens to people outside of that top 19. Um, and so it kind of distributes stake um, evenly across people that have like good uptime that are following the rules that are trying to become a large validator. And it automatically kind of shifts stake to those folks to add more, you know, numbers to that, like, you know, I guess, super minority that could shut down the network if all of them are compromised at the same time. Um, and so mm -hmm. the reason why you would want to do that though, is one, it helps just the network and two, you get stake tokens and you can use these stake kind of like staking derivative tokens in DeFi. So you can earn extra yield on it, or you can trade them, you can, you know, make them economically um, viable in a lot of DeFi protocols. And so that's what a lot of people do um, because of, of just kind of like the extra rewards that you get from doing so. Okay. So who are the big staking pool providers for our audience? Because I, I, I think that term is getting banded about a lot, but again, people have no clue what staking, are those individual companies as well where you get, kind of applications which are purely focused on being a staking pool for token holders. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the main ones on Solana today are Marinade, um, Lido, and Socian. Um, there's there's probably like 10 to 15, but those three are kind of like the largest in terms of usage today. Oh, so, so this segues into another mythical topic, which we hope this year people will try to demystify because I think NFTs, that kind of understanding is moving quick, Matt. And I'm sure you see it in the market where people are, I mean, I'm getting carried away here now. It's still in the minority, let's face it. But the understanding of what NFTs are and digital scarcity and the way you can program an NFT to offer X capabilities, I think that train is picking up pace and with Coinbase NFT coming out and with the announcement with MasterCard to make that unwrap like super easy where my sister could do it, I think NFTs are progressing fast. I felt DeFi, which is a really meaningful value unlock, especially with all the money printing and the fact that no one can get a, a kind of a, a meaningful risk-free risk free rate on return on their capital is, is, is causing so much pain in the world, right? That's why people are going so further up the risk curve to kind of fight inflation and, and make sure their fiat isn't a, a melting ice cube, which it is. So, and, and last year, everyone talked about DeFi summer. Everyone last year thought this is going to be the year of DeFi. And it's not really happened because it's still very complicated. Most people haven't got a bloody clue of what DeFi is. But I think I'm getting a lot of questions on, like, where does the APY come from? <laughs> so, is a lot of that APY from things like Marinade and Lido where you're kind of offering your token to a staking pool, they go away and kind of spread that across the more minority validators. And that value exchange, that spread offers some form of yield back to the original holder. Is that is that an example of DeFi or or a way of 
another financial in- instrument where people can actually generate yield from holding a Solana or Ethereum. Yeah. So just as an example, like, I think you're right. Like when, when you stake, so inherently um, in Solana, according to the core, core protocol kind of code, there's an inflation rate. Now it, it tails off over time where it becomes very deflationary, but um, right now that there's, there's an inflation rate, I think it's something like, I don't know, six and a half percent, um, mm-hmm. for block rewards. So that means like there's 6%, um, new tokens entering the market. Um, and when you stake, you get to basically like get that 6%, um, cause you're locking up your tokens, um, in kind of a staking validator. Um, and so that's one way to earn kind of yield, I guess, on your existing tokens, but what's interesting with stake pools is like you don't just get that, like you get that automatically. But when you use a stake pool like Marinade, it automatically generates like a, an MSOL token, a, a new token that you can basically go onto like a decentralized lending protocol like Solend and get an additional like 5% of, of just traders who are borrowing tokens on a short term um, and, and earn an extra APY that way. Um, and so that that's what's interesting in terms of like stake pools and and the ability to earn yield oh so so wait when it's things like wrapped soul which becomes uh, some form of m soul for example that's then staked with a, a pure play DeFi protocol yep and then it goes away off into the mist to those really exotic uh derivatives players who want access to that collateral and they go away and do their ultra complex trading, which you as a customer at the end doesn't need to know because it's far too damn complicated. Obviously, you're taking risk. And in that market, in that new parallel system, that's where you get those compelling APYs because it's a brand new market. And there is some, frankly, risky, but interesting and exotic things happening. Is that the whole I know it's a simplified kind of... Yes, yes, that's generally correct. Although I think the risk is less than you think because you're not necessarily like... The way that a lot of these lending protocols work is that they're over-collateralized. So when you borrow tokens, you can get liquidated very quickly automatically if if, the market turns against you. Um, And so I think lenders are pretty protected on, on that sense. Um, it's more just like, I think the risk with all of this stuff is that it's, it's, it's one big experiment, right? Like (laughs) our contracts haven't been around that long. And so, you know, there could be a variety of different bugs, both economic and technical that, that have happened where, um, you know, so there's this, this smart contract risk, but if you're comfortable with that, if you're comfortable kind of living in this web three world, um, it's an interesting kind of, yeah, world to play around in. When do you think DeFi is going to drop? Because I look at the TVL today on, say, DeFi Pulse. It's always flirted around 75 billion to sometimes, I think it touched 100 billion for like a couple of days. But that's still like tiny in the world of kind of bonds and equities and real estate. It's nothing, right? When do you think, because I think DeFi is like really useful. I know a lot of family and friends who would love to just, use an app-based DeFi protocol and go not understand what's happening on the back end because they don't need to, and they probably can't, to be fair with them. Probably could if they had the time, but they don't have the time. And they just want to get a meaningful yield of 6 to maybe 8% or further up the risk curve if they decide. But I don't see DeFi really 
blowing up yet like in terms of really accelerating it but everyone's mooted before christmas and january this is going to be the year of DeFi. from what you're seeing in the solana ecosystem because it's got a, a natural superpower for that use case do you think this year is going to be the year of DeFi, matt where it does cross that chasm in terms of adoption and 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 kind of traction i think um first of all i i don't know well all i know is like where where are the developers building um and by far where they're building the most is in DeFi, and so that that's why i'm super excited about it in terms of like when you know mass adoption happens i i don't know i think partly that is determined on a, f- a few different fronts one is just you know um, we need better kind of user interfaces and you know better product experiences that that integrate with these core protocols. Um, I think that's happening uh, quickly. I think you know things like Phantom, which is the main wallet on Solana, is kind of like pushing forward on on the UX front and making it really easy to interact with these things. But that's been something in the past that's pre- you know prevented people from entering the DeFi world. I mean, second, I'm I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a regulator, but I think regulation is like a big thing um, that scares folks in, in some senses. And yeah. it'll be interesting to see how how that piece of it plays out because a lot of this technology is inherently um, very different than previous technologies mm-hmm. and how it functions. And so I think regulation is going to need to kind of follow suit. Um, yeah. In order to kind of accommodate the ecosystem. Yeah, because it's interesting. There's this exponential gap between the tech and regulators, right? You look at securities laws. I mean, they're from 1933. They can't really, (laughs) like, understand the context on, I mean, at the moment, the SEC just kind of more have a lazy posture that, God, these are all securities, period, right? (laughs) And that's that's not really (laughs) an adult way of going about it, right? Like, I, I think... That needs to be revamped. From what we observe, and it's kudos to the community in Web3, they're just moving so damn quick that regulators just can't even keep pace, can they, Matt? It's just it's just too much to digest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just still trying to wrap their head around, at least in the US, they're trying to wrap their head around Bitcoin, let alone like, you know, all this stuff happening in Web3. Um, I, you know, I remain somewhat optimistic that, you know, you know, this technology is global in nature. And so if any one jurisdiction decides to, you know, try to shut it down or, you know, restrict entrepreneurs from building in the space or holding crypto or whatever, um, it's just going to move somewhere else um, and flourish in that place instead. Um, and so I think there's an inherent incentive, at least in the United States, to to be very yeah, accommodative to, to this technology, because I do think it's like the, you know, the future of the financial and, you know, insti- you know, space generally, um, and a bunch of under- other industries. And so if we want to ensure that we have, um, you know, a good place in kind of the world order in the 21st century, it's going to require us to have pretty friendly laws. And so we'll see how it plays out. But I think that's going to become very apparent very quickly in the next couple of years. Yeah, I share your optimism, Matt, because there was a big hearing just before. There was one in Q4, right, where you, I think, was it Brian Brooks? You had yeah. the chat, the CEO from Celsius. You had Sam flying with, you look funny in a suit. Yeah, like Coinbase, I think this Coinbase, 
Eagle Council there, which, which was really cool. Everyone, everyone was trying to represent and speak well. And to be fair, Matt, the questions were pretty good from the senators. I, I think 80% of the questions were were good and well-researched. I was pleasantly su- surprised. There's always one hero in the crowd who doesn't know anything and just ask stupid questions. <laughs> but you could tell everyone actually done their homework, didn't they? And they were trying to learn and and trying to meet people intellectually halfway i don't know how if that was just a, yeah, a thing they done for publicity but it it seemed promising yeah it's it's interesting i think there's a few things that are just like narrative wise going for crypto like one is just that the china has functionally like banned things like mining and exchange within its borders and so it's like it's kind of like a counterbalance to that is like one narrative that i think is resonating i think another thing is like there's this there's this huge kind of push to to disintermediate, I think, like Google, Facebook, um, these big Web2 kind of like monopolies in a sense. Um, and the government is like, yeah, seemingly like very much not happy about that. Um, and I think Web2 or Web3 is kind of like a technology version of that, right? Um, that I think could, could get alignment. Um, and so... Yeah, well, I mean, I, I remain optimistic. I think it's, I mean, if you go to crypto Twitter, people are always complaining about, you know, the U.S. government and, and you know, other jurisdictions on their regulation. But I think, you know, so far it hasn't been that detrimental, at least to the to the development, other than like, you know, some DeFi protocols don't feel comfortable offering, you know, their interface in the U.S. Um, but other than that, I think um, it's going it's going OK so far. I think for the US, this is a massive opportunity. So anything they do from a regulatory standpoint, which is archaic, they're just going to lose entrepreneurship and jobs, right? Yeah. And ingenuity in the economy. So fingers crossed. I mean, US has got a great history on putting their arms around innovation, right? Or, Or the next new paradigm. And that's been proven out with the internet. So it would be shocking if they let this one slip outside their borders, because you're right, this time round, it can go global, right? You've got different hubs in Southeast Asia, Singapore. I know things are happening in UAE. I know certain parts of Europe. We've had a number of guests from the, the Dark region, mm-hmm. Germany, uh, Switzerland, um, Austria. And I, Matt, I was really impressed with some of the activity there. UK is kind of getting there. So US has its shot here, right? To, um, kind of get some impetus back so um it's more of an opportunity but that one we could talk about for hours because i think that that's going to be a big journey for everyone right it's not going to happen overnight but going to a a key metric which is always foundational is they always say follow the developers right and electric capital um published a really good report i think a week and a half ago where they i think they mentioned there's um what 18,000 plus developers um, in the ecosystem now. Obviously, they were only the open source folks they could actually track. Um, A lot of people think the number's a lot bigger than that. But how's it been at Solana in terms of traction and numbers? What does it look like in terms of that volume and that excitement in, in that community? Yeah, I that's a like the electric capital developer report is great every year. I always read it. Um and I think it showed, you know, this year that Solana has 
really increased um its its developer ecosystem um yeah and i, and I think you're right like it it doesn't it, it's directionally correct um but like it doesn't include you know closed closed repo repositories on github which there are many um teams building um it does i think they admitted that it didn't include like nfts and gaming and such um so i think it, you know it's directionally correct not exactly correct um, but in Solana, I mean, I think, I think that's what kind of where it stops and ends in terms of like why people are so excited about this technology is that it's attracted such a high quality, um, ecosystem of developers that's just growing faster than any other ch chain, um, by a mile. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, what's super exciting. Um, and, you know, obviously the core technology and its performance is like attracting these really quality entrepreneurs and, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is what's most exciting, I think about Solana right now. And breaking that activity down, where are you seeing compelling dApps? Is it within the NFT space or B2B enterprise use cases? Is it DeFi? What are the top two use cases where, what gets you really excited in just the Solana community? I mean, right now, I think, yeah, as we've talked about just like DeFi and specifically DeFi use cases right now that can't be really can't really work on other chains, especially like you know options protocols, der other derivatives, margin trading, things that struggle on other L1s are thriving on Solana right now, um, and so that's yeah. like one interesting area. And then obviously just like I mean NFT, yeah, it was supposed to be the year of DeFi, but it was definitely the year of NFTs, right? Um, it just <laughs> had a huge explosion, and so. I think I mentioned this, but like Magic Eden um, is like the main NFT marketplace on Solana right now. And there's a ton of usage of that, just a ton of different e NFT projects that are kind of plugging into that core infrastructure. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll see kind of like what a lot of these, like a lot of these projects have started as kind of like generative NFTs, right? Like profile pictures. But it, what's yeah. interesting is it's kind of evolving into like, you know, first of all, they form like a DAO, right, on like Discord, and you know, they they kind of are trying to figure out, okay, like we we can now build based on this kind of like IP that we all ho hold. Um, we can build a game. We can build, you know, other experiences that incorporate these NFT primitives. And so, I think we, we're seeing a lot of games specifically pop up, kind of in that vein that that I'm really excited about. So, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Awesome. And obviously you're a practitioner in this space and naturally bullish on this, but some predictions, I know predictions are always a challenge, Matt, in the wacky world of Web3 and, and the, the beautiful primitive of the blockchain. But what excites you in the next 18 months to two years, A, in Solana and just B, in the wider Web3 world, what you're really bullish on and just excited to see come to fruition? I'm excited, I guess, for Solana to to just continue growing across these various, you know, use case verticals like DeFi, NFTs, gaming. Um, I think we'll see in the next 18 months very, very large um, companies and organizations plug into these kind of like DeFi protocols um, and probably just organically, you know, some protocols are gonna gonna reach like 100 million users, um, and so yeah, really excited about that. Um, outside of Solana, uh, I think I'm a 
like I kind of said at the beginning, I'm still like a massive Bitcoin believer. And I think it's, we're just macroeconomically and just politically in the world right now, we're in an interesting spot where there seems like there's a you know, rising inflation on some level. Um, there is kind of a schism in how governments are treating each other, um, potentially escalated by COVID, I think is a big factor. And I think Bitcoin is, you know, obviously I, I, I think that it could solve a lot of the issues that we have with our central banking system and inflation, but I think it, it kind of unifies people in a sense of having like a global monetary standard, which I, I don't, I think people are just completely underestimating what the outcome of that will be. Um, but it, it is kind of a unifying um monetary kind of phenomenon and asset. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens in the next 18 months around Bitcoin. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think people putting the price action aside, I think that gets looked at too much. It's not really about that. It is really, if you look back at history, and I'm sure you've read things like the Bitcoin standard, there's a great piece yeah. by the same author called the Fiat standard, which I highly recommend. And if you look at history, the gold standard was meaningful back in the day, right? Because it meant something. It, it gave you some kind of peg and some meaningful store of value, which fiat was pegged against. So gold did serve a purpose, right? For all those, God, for thousands of years and in the 1900s, it was something. But history is full of so many events where you've got central banks always trying to run away from being pegged against gold, right? And just run away and just be naughty and print and just destroy the monetary base. So history has proved they can't be trusted to behave and stay on a gold standard or say, stay on some form of peg, which protects wealth. So it looks like the Bitcoin network, it's like adult supervision, right? Independent adult supervision on uh, having an effective monetary system in a way. It seems like the, the mature mathematically programmed beautiful system in the room right like which can solve this world problem which leads to so many socioeconomic problems uh inequality and wealth and and all the other side effects around that so um what's your thoughts on that i mean is, is that the way you like to think about bitcoin or would, would you like to kind of get, also add to that to that perspective yeah i i mean i agree with a lot of what you said i think you know, the, the way maybe I've kind of recently after years convinced my parents that Bitcoin matters is that I think <laughs> two factors. One is that like central banks, they're, they're just a, it's just a group of people, right, that are influenced often by politics and, you know, their view of what the state of the economy is, which is often imperfect. Um, and so we're, we're just relying on a small group of people um to to make a decision on what the, the supply or demand of money should be um and i think that's just like was proven out in the 20th century that that kind of like central planning doesn't work in markets very well um mm. and i think uh you know bitcoin is kind of immune to that it's more of a market based solution to to kind of the money problem um and so that's that that leads to one really important thing, which is like the ability to like economically plan. Um, and 
I think this also kind of relates with like Web3 where if you look at, yeah, again, like the, the lessons of the 20th century were like where economic prosperity happened is often in places that provided one like certainty and stability, um, both in like rule of law and and it's kind of like economy in in terms of like building businesses and like, you know, creating entrepreneurship. And so I think Bitcoin and these like credibly neutral, like smart contract platforms are are setting up kind of like the, the you know, a digital country or, or nation in a sense of having that certainty and that ab- ability to like economically plan um, for everyone, uh, no matter where you live. And so I think that's a super powerful concept. And I think we're just seeing kind of the, the beginnings of it right now. Um, but yeah, I just super excited about it all generally. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't agree. I love the way you put it there, Matt. Economically plan and that opportunity being open to everyone. It could be someone with, say, a blue collar job, but works really hard and wants to plan for their children's education. So allocate somewhere where they get a meaningful yield and they can just have a happy life and have structure. So, or it could be someone who's an ultra high performer and works really hard and achieves something great but then can still not have to spend an exorbitant amount of time like Michael Saylor, who was an enterprise software guy, but he's gone, he's gone so far up the risk curve and research rabbit hole to go, I need to protect myself, right? I'm really pissed off with the system. Yeah, I'm going to go all in on investing, but also advocate and, and make this a global standard because the world needs to change. So I think the existing system is forcing people to even not do anything and i feel so sorry for them because they just a lot of them don't even know the ones who do know are super frustrated hence all the kind of challenges we have on the social side of things but also the people who do know are forced further up the risk curve right and have to do growth equities and do this and do that and do handstands to just just to just to um, defend themselves against basic inflation. And inflation is a vector, right? Right. For most people in most areas, if you live in the Bay Area, you might argue your inflation rate, depending on your context, can be up to 30, 35%, right? If you're into prime real estate and you're quite ambitious around where you live, right? So it's all these handstands we have to do, that energy can be used on creating the next new great medicine or building something in your community which helps children where all this other energy is now being used on protecting your wealth which you can have math and code do that and go guys i'm taking care of this go do some other cool stuff like it's it it seems so obvious but i know it's going to be a challenge getting there yeah and i think it's just like also just so many people i think what's interesting about DeFi and like bitcoin and some of these things is that there's so many people like working within the financial industry, like these huge monolithic companies. And these people are like, you know, should, should, you know, some of the best and brightest like PhDs in the world be working at like hedge funds to make like an 8% return on their, you know, their, <laughs> their capital. Right. Is that, is that the best usage of their time? Um, and I, I don't think it is. I mean, I think if, if there's, there's more certainty um, I think, you know, a lot of these folks will choose things that they're passionate about. Um, and so, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. You're from the Elon Musk or account. I think Elon says it all the time. He goes, the amount of uh, 
engineering talent, which gets sucked into financial engineering because of the economic rewards. He goes, it's a complete waste of talent. So obviously we need financial engineering in Web3, but once it's built, it's built, right? It's software. So I couldn't agree with you more. That engineering, those engineering chops needs to go into uh, machine learning first uh, medicine and life sciences or anything around the environment. So, yeah. yeah. And I, and I think what's interesting also is like you, when, what, what's an interesting, I think we're just seeing kind of the beginnings of this is like this notion of like a DAO and like a group of people kind of like forming around a certain, like, um, you know, cause or, or, or want to buy something. Right. Like, I don't know if you saw, um, like obviously you probably heard of the constitution now or yeah, you know, the constitution down. Yeah. That was crazy. But then right? There was more recently yeah. this like group of people that like didn't believe, you know, like Ross Ulbricht, the founder of like the Silk Road um, shouldn't be in prison for life. Um, and so they've like kind of like banded together and like are formulating kind of like a coalition to, to, to prevent, you know, get them out of prison. Right. Oh and shit. So, I wasn't aware of that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, but that, that notion of just like seeing people kind of like, form capital, form a group into this like, group that's like non-sovereign to solve like some problem um, that, that needs attention, I think is really interesting. I think that's where you're going to see maybe like climate, um, you know, work and, you know, education and all, and all sorts of like really interesting kind of like, um, yeah, kind of use cases for DAOs. Um, and so that's another pretty exciting area. I think we'll see probably maybe not in the next like year or two, but five, 10 years down the line. You know, Matt, on that one, I think DAOs might happen a lot faster than we think. I've got a little sneaky feeling. What's what's your reasoning for that? I just think, obviously, you had the Constitution DAO, right? Yeah. And then, obviously, you've got the the Silk Road situation. But I think, and, and I'm seeing a few emergent use cases. I've seen a really cool one, which does it on early stage R&D within life sciences. They're doing some work around longevity drugs which I thought was quite cool. And that spun up, but I I think the actual model of a DAO and the way you can spin it up and the way you can bake in all the incentive structures, we actually have a lot of those picks and shovels either ready or about to be ready and very scalable. So the actual stack is pretty much nearly there. And I think with the right marketing and the right packaging, for folks at scale to understand what a DAO is and how they can participate at scale might happen a lot faster because it can then jet ski on the back of other kind of, obviously you've seen Kickstarter, other for this angel list. There already is web two type. Uh, you've got Republic. There, there already are examples which people are aware of and they're successful of capital formation through kind of retail getting involved and and many parties all across the world. So I just think mentally, I think people will, if it's packaged well with the right team doing it, I think people will get it and go, wow, shit. I want to participate. Shit. I want to work for a DAO. Oh, I can work there and get even more value. So, and I think that's going to converge because I think a lot of things move fast when things are secretly converging What's happening with NFTs and Coinbase, MasterCard, all of these periphery things just quietly in the background will accelerate the timing for DAOs and the understanding of DAOs. Uh, Am I making sense where all these background things 
accidentally end up accelerating DAOs and the and the adoption of DAOs and and the way they gather momentum and traction. Yeah, no, I I think I generally agree. Um, we'll we'll see kind of like what what people do. I think one interesting maybe point to add on to that is if you've ever joined like let's say one of these like DAOs that exist in like NFT land where you have like a bunch of people that like bought into this kind of like vision of like an NFT project and they have like profile pictures or like whatever cats or monkeys or whatever. If you go into these like discord channels, what's interesting is that like there's usually like a skills channel and this and people where people kind of like post like, Hey, I'm a designer or Hey, like, you know, I'm an accountant and like the, the, the vastness of experiences and people that are in these things is insane. You could never hire for this, like, you know, diverse group of skill sets. And I'm, I'm curious to see if that results just like in very different kind of like ancillary products and services or, or kind of like movements around it. Um, And I think, I don't want to say that like DAOs are going to like disrupt the limited liability corporation model, but I think they'll, they, they, their ability to attract a bunch of different types of people under a shared vision is really interesting. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, even even the LLC model back in the day was a huge innovation. Huge, huge innovation. There's actually a book about it. I forgot that I'll ping it to you, Matt. Yeah. But that was like huge because before that, you didn't have that where people were like, I'm not going to invest. I've got yeah. crazy exposure. See you later, right? That people underestimate how massive the LLC form factor was. You know what you described it, Matt? You raise a crazy point here. When you talk about t- not only capital formation, but top quality talent formation. Yeah. So the analogy I would use is, it's more of a Web2 SaaS analogy, but you'll know you're a growth guy and you're from Square. You spent four, four years there. You know, when people talk about product-led growth, where the product's that good and it just grows itself because you have a free new model, people use the product, they end up paying. With DAOs, you're going to have talent ape into a project because talent will be aware, I can shop for a job. I can actually look inside the kimono and see what this is and make my own decision if I want to participate. When that's when that genie's out of the bottle, top people are gonna like, mate, I don't need to go speak to a recruiter or apply for a job. There's plenty of DAOs out there. Here's a kind of a, a repository of DAOs or a subset of DAOs. I'm just gonna go out there and, and find it myself or create my own one. Yeah. So it's, it's suck up talent. Yeah. And it's- yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I know this is already happening in the crypto industry where like I know some really top investors, data scientists, designers that were working at, you know, leading VC firms and crypto projects that just like quit. And now they like issue out proposals to DAOs of like, you know, DeFi projects or NFT projects for their services, essentially. Um, and, you know, they're, they're making a living doing that and, and a much better living than they were, um, you know, when they were working for some VC firm. Um, yeah, and, so it's yeah, interesting. And if, yeah. And if you look at if these things scale... I mean, this is more kind of finance talk here, but it is meaningful to people. The liquidity profile is revolutionary. Like once these projects scale, I mean, people stay in the projects because they're passionate about it, but people can gain liquidity if required, right? Because of a personal reason, it isn't your classic startup model. This is just 
a whole new way of capital formation, talent formation, business execution, and having liquidity whenever you want it because you've done the work and and you've earned it without no process. So it's just, it it seems so much better on all fronts, Matt. Yeah, I I think, I think the way that you laid out is good where I think in 2017, it's interesting, like there was this, you know, this is the explosion of the ICO, right? (laughs) And everyone was like, kind of like the, the narrative was like, look at how ridiculous this is, like all these crappy projects getting tons of funding. But what, yeah. what was the missing kind of like huge benefit to this was like there has never been in a time in history where you could, you know, accumulate capital so efficient, efficiently and, and effectively across the world from so many different people. And I think that was like kind of the model that was pioneered in 2017. But now I think with, you know, the, the like you said, the, the Dow tooling and, and services have have allowed for this like next really important critical part, which is, yeah, attracting talent to all this capital. Um, and good things happen when when those two things meet, right? Um, and so, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens in the future. Yeah, it's definitely one to watch. But Matt, well, we could go on for hours. It's, this has been an enthralling conversation. For, for our audience, top resources that you recommend online or, or books for someone who's entry level or kind of slightly entry stroke approaching intermediate, whatever intermediate means in this wacky world, but any recommended favorite learning resources where people can continue their learning journey? Yeah, this is a good question. There's a ton of noise in crypto generally. If you're someone yeah. coming in fresh, that's hard to like sift through. I would say, um, I don't know if I have any like books necessarily to recommend, but they got to get on crypto Twitter. This is like the, you know, the epicenter of crypto information and like, starting to spend the time like finding people that you trust that um, are in kind of the space and that will lead you to follow like and create kind of like a a feed of information coming out of the crypto industry that you can learn very quickly from and so that that is my one recommendation um is definitely get on twitter and then i don't know i if, if you're interested in Bitcoin and want to learn just about the principles, I would just like YouTube Andreas Antonopoulos. Um, he's got a bunch of great videos about like the philosophy and economics behind Bitcoin. And at least when I was kind of like first starting out, I learned a lot from him. So highly recommend him on YouTube. Is Andreas, he does that internet or value series. I think I've seen some of his stuff. Um, I haven't actually checked out that. I'm more like search for his stuff from like 2013 and 2014, to be honest. Oh, and like, early. yeah, just he he just has a lot of like overviews about like what Bitcoin is, why it was built, what the problems of the current system are, and yeah, how it how it could potentially solve it. Um, so yeah, highly recommend him. Brilliant. Well, well, Matt, it's been awesome having you on the show. Mate, let's do part two maybe in September, right? When a part of the season's been played out and we'll see where Solana is and all the great work you're doing there. So you up for part two and maybe kind of late Q3? Yeah, happy to do it. Happy to jump on again. It was great. Great chatting with you. Awesome, Matt. We'll look forward to catching up with you soon and you have a fantastic start to the year. Okay. Cheers. Bye. 
And there you have it, everyone, for today's interview with Matt Taylor. I want to thank Matt so much for taking time out of his schedule and sharing his wisdom and insights with us today on the podcast. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, then be sure you subscribe to the podcast. We come every week with a new episode. If you love today's episode, then share this episode out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly benefit from listening to today's podcast. Again, for listening to today's episode, you can grab PatSnap's free copy of their number one best-selling ebook, The Definitive Guide to Connected Innovation Intelligence. In this white paper, we explore what CII is, who it's for, and how the world's disruptors are using it to win in hyper-competitive markets. And to download your free copy of this amazing ebook, all you have to do is go to patsnap.com or check out the link in the description of this podcast to get your free copy today. Thank you all so much for spending time with us. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.